That song was like a, the, an intro to an NPR podcast. <laughs> Very fitting for me to come up here and preach. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mike St. Dennis. I'm the associate pastor here at All Souls Fellowship. Welcome to each of you, especially those who are visiting this morning, whether you just moved to the area or you're visiting with family or you're coming looking for a church home. Welcome to you. We are so glad to worship with you. Uh, you may have noticed that things are a little bit different this morning. Uh, today, we are taking a break from kind of our normal operating procedure uh, to celebrate ways to partner in ministry this next year. You know, school is only a few weeks away, and with that, we'll have our Sunday school teacher training and our youth leader training on August 8th. August 13th, our new hospitality year will kick off for those who are greeting and serving coffee and the like. Uh, community groups, men's and women's stuff will kick off in the month of August as well. And before you know it, Advent will be here. With the new ministry year uh, and, and, and looking for people to sign up to partner with us this next year, uh, we want to take time in our, with our sermon this morning to reflect on uh, what God does in the church and how he does it how we live out the hope of the resurrection together. Here at All Souls, our vision for this community and our gathering together, whether it's on Sunday mornings or the beer and cheese events or the mission trips or whatever it is that we do, anytime we are together, we are practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. Practicing the hope of heaven, the reality of reconciliation, all these things together. Uh, and we do that when we serve together too, whether you're uh, teaching God's Word in Sunday school or leading community group discussions, practicing hospitality, greeting, even running the slideshow here. Um, if you are participating in our missions programs and things like that, everything that we do is about practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things, bearing witness to that renewal, experiencing our, it ourselves, and sharing it with one another. Uh, and this dovetails nicely with also our values here as a church. So everything that we do is rooted in the grace and rest we receive in Jesus. But we really believe that for God to use All Souls, Indicator, and East Atlanta in 2023 and in the years to come, we believe that the witness God wants to use us for is that we would be a community of engagement in a culture that is full of distraction. That we would be a community of contribution in a culture of consumption, asking what's in it for me. A community of reconciliation in a culture of division. And so even something as simple as opening the door and smiling and welcoming somebody in is a way that we embody not only our vision, but also our values and practice what we believe is the good news of Jesus. That because God himself and Jesus has come and died and risen again, we can have new life, new relationships with one another. Now, I've got a few data points that I want to share with you. Over the last four or five years, I've been in charge of assimilation, uh, newcomers, hospitality, reaching out to people, things like that. And so I kind of have some data for you about what our community at All Souls is like here. All Souls is made up of about 330 adult members and attenders, and well over 200 kids, 0 to 18 years of age. Across all the ministries that we have inside the church and then the opportunities that we partner with outside these walls, 
More than 200 adults and teenagers served this last year in 300 ministry roles. Out there on the clipboards, there's not quite 300 roles, but in the church and in our ministries, there are. And 200 people serving in those roles means that many people wear more than one hat. And 200 people serving those ministries with 330 adults and 200 kids means that there's still a lot of people who haven't experienced the joy and delight of serving and practicing witnessing to the gospel in the way that we love and care for one another. Now, 125 additional people uh, did help out in short-term opportunities like Vacation Bible School and the MLK Breakfast and the like this last year. Uh, And just as somebody who's in charge of volunteers a lot, I got to tell you, I spent a lot of time and, and thought, I joked about it last week, that I'm going to get up here and, and guilt trip you and shame you into serving. Because I spent a lot of time looking over the holes and the needs that we have in the church and then lamenting and saying, God, why can't we have a few more people to welcome, a few more people to love and care? But then over the last week, and this has happened several times the last year, I look at the number of people who are serving and the stories that they represent, and I'm convicted and moved. Because how great God is and how well he has provided. Now with the ministry year kicking off in just a couple weeks, we're about 50% of the way to filling the 300 roles for this next year. And our hope this morning, the reason why we just had a 15-minute break and, and why we've got these tables in the lobby is so that we can get a little bit further of the way there, especially with trainings coming up the first week of August. So hopefully you're taking time to consider and pray even this morning uh, and you won't head out the doors today until you, you see a way that maybe God is inviting you to serve here. But there's another set of data that is even more exciting and that I want to share with you today. Since I got here almost 12 years ago, there is something that has like never ceased to amaze me. No matter how well the preaching and the music goes or complete failures on a Sunday morning. No matter how many volunteers we have or how many posts go unmanned, God has always done something consistently here at All Souls that surprised me. Every week, God brings in new people looking for a church home. And in the last 12 months, over 300 adults and their children have visited our church for the first time. Over 300. And I know this because those who bring kids check in at the registration desk. I have a cheat sheet in my, in my pocket so that I can remember the people that I met because it's easy to forget names. Over 300 people come in. That's an average of about 5.4, uh, I think. Don't check my math because I looked it up a long time ago. But uh, 5.4 on a Sunday morning. Just today, I counted about uh, 15 or 20. Every week at All Souls, God is inviting people and bringing people in to come and check out this community. And so that means each week that we join together, five of our neighbors and friends come to see what we're about. Asking themselves, is All Souls a place that God has prepared for me? A place where I can hear the good news about Jesus, where I can learn and grow, but also where I can be loved and cared for by others? And I can find my place to love and care as part of God's mission. Some years ago, we were starting a community group. Karen, you might remember this. We had 27 people gathered together. And we went around the room 
to say, what are our expectations together? And I'm hoping for like something cool. Like people are like, we're trying to figure out the miracles in the Bible. We're trying to figure out what kinds of things God does. How do we summon the power to heal? Or what does it look like to interpret tongues? I'm looking for something like that. Or even just like, how do we get along better and resolve conflict? But as we went around the room, 27 people, and everybody answered that they were looking for basically the same thing, to belong. We're looking to make friends. We're looking to be supported. We're looking when the car breaks down, we have somebody that we can call. When we've got questions, when we're fighting, we've got somebody to listen, a shoulder to lean on. The reality is in the church is that sin and brokenness has come into the world and destroyed relationships. And the church, because of the good news about Jesus, is that God is putting those relationships right. Fixing, changing the world, healing. And he's doing it through our gathering together, giving a little bit of time on a Sunday morning, spending time together during the week, the relationships that we build together. Francis Schaeffer said that the church's best apologetic is the way that they love one another. So on average, five people are coming to our service each week. And a few years ago, the Barna Research Group discovered that 70% of people make their decision about whether or not they'll come back to the church they visited in the first seven minutes. And they discover that 35% of statistics are made up. The first seven minutes, right? I spend a lot of time meeting people who are coming for the first time and talking with people um, as they're checking our church out. And I can tell you that the conversations we have, it's not about theology, it's not about the sermons, it's not about the music, it's about the people. So I believe that this stat is true, that it's the first seven minutes as people come in. Because in the first seven minutes, we haven't gotten to the sermon. We haven't talked about Presbyterian polity and elders and deacons. We haven't talked about children's ministry programs and the like, or our missions opportunities. We haven't talked about any of that. In the first seven minutes, we probably haven't even started worship. And still, there's a large number of us who haven't even gotten into their car yet. <laughs> but because people are making their decision and asking God the question, is this church for me? Because they're doing that in the first seven minutes, that means that you are the answer to their question. You. Uh, maybe you've been here before when we're getting the service started a little bit late. You can always tell somebody who's new because they're here on time or early. <laughs> right? And how many times, 10 till 9, somebody's sitting in here, and then we're busy getting stuff ready and set up, and then... And then we just wish, maybe if there were a few more people to come and greet and welcome and get to know them. That's why we have these tables out here today. It's, it's deeply important what we do, even just welcoming and saying hello and smiling to one another. And as we think about this next ministry year and how we're to partner together, I want to remind us about something about the church that Stephen shared a few weeks ago. Stephen shared that uh, the way that we love one another is so important and that here inside the church, this is like the laboratory or the gym where we work out how to be together and how to care for one another because of the foundation of faith that we have together so that then we can go love and care for one another 
even people who don't have that same foundation. As another person put it, the church is not a movie theater, something just to watch and observe, but it's more like a dojo where we need to put on our different colored belts and get to fighting, fighting for the gospel, for the hope that we have in Jesus. So rather than guilting and shaming you, I just want to present a picture of what the early church was like so that we can see how they organized to love and care for one another, to be devoted to one another, and what God did in their midst. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 6. You can read along in the worship guide, or you can listen as I read for us. We're going to look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because of their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Pumbaa, <laughs> Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so when you look at this passage, this isn't explicitly about service. This isn't, here's, here's why we love one another. Here's how you as the church need to get organized to love one another. This passage here is about, in the early church, transferring leadership from the apostles, how they empowered and equipped other leaders, particularly in this group, putting Greek leaders, each one of those names is a Greek name, in charge of loving and caring for the Greek widows that were in their community. It's about fostering connection in that early church. The Jews and the Greeks, two groups that were historical enemies, being brought together around the table and in one another's homes, sharing in the responsibility and the leadership of the church together. But this passage is situated in the book of Acts in this testimony of how the church grew, how it was founded and grew after Jesus ascends to heaven. And the church in Acts is marked by radical love and hospitality for one another. At the beginning of Acts, the apostles are meeting with the resurrected Jesus. And it says that he's comforting them and explaining to them what just took place. You can imagine they would be shell-shocked following their leader who gets put to death and then does what he says and, and told them he was going to do the whole time, but still it didn't register with them that he was going to be raised from the dead. And after comforting them, he gives them instruction and charge, saying, after a little while, the Holy Spirit will come upon you in power, 
and then you will carry on my ministry. You will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So the disciples wait, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and immediately they go out to preach and teach in the streets. And their message, every message in Acts, the early church that is growing and thriving, every message is the same. There's a man who came who is Jesus. Turns out he was God. He died and he rose again. And we're here to tell you about it. And we're here to live into that reality that God loves and cares for us so that not even death can stop his mission. Luke tells us in the book of Acts that as the people receive this message, they immediately begin to embody it in the ways that they devote themselves to one another. Inside their homes, out in the city streets, practicing the message and the prayers, breaking bread together, fellowshipping, and meeting one another's needs. And what we read in chapters 2 through 5 is that in the course of a few months, the community of Christians in Jerusalem alone swelled to nearly 10,000 people in months. And this isn't just in the Bible's account of it, but it's also in the historical record as well. And that's nearly a quarter of the population of Jerusalem that hears this message that a dead man came back to life and they begin living and loving like it's true. And God added to their numbers daily. And so, of course, then this problem arises. There were festivals going on at the time, so many Jewish people from around the Greek world came to visit the city. They hear this amazing message, and they say, we don't want to go home. And so as the community is mixing together different cultures, different languages, these Greeks and these, and these Jewish believers together mixing all of a sudden, they have a distribution problem. A distribution problem that not all of the needs are being met equally. And so again, the disciples then gather together, come up with this plan and this proposal, assigning Greek men then to serve in these roles. And what we see at the end of this passage here is that God added to their numbers. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And even the priests came to believe. So what's going on in this passage? How is this miracle taking place? It is a miracle, as one scholar noted, never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, ever achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture, without the aid of physical force, or social or cultural prestige. So how did the church then grow? What happened in their midst? How were they so transformed individually and as a community that then the Christian faith began to permeate the culture, and that in just a few hundred years, this Galilean faith began to take hold in one of the, in, in one of the greatest empires to exist? How did that happen? Looking at the passage in verses 6 and 7, we see that the service and care for the early church was foundational to their community. 
Verse 6 says, In those days when the number of disciples, verses 1 and 2, sorry. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained that the Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, So the twelve gathered together all the disciples and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. But then they put other people in charge. So they heard the complaint. They didn't dismiss it. They didn't say, do you know how hard we're working to preach? Even here, when they say it's not right for us to wait on tables, I think all of us want to be able to say, like, what's beneath us, right? That's kind of, that's below my station, But the disciples aren't saying that here because it says later on that they transferred the authority that they had and that the the role that they had in distributing the food to then they pass it along to this new group. So they were engaging in this role already, but this tension because of the success and the numbers that were increasing rapidly, their organization as a community was not able to sustain their mission and their growth. So, they did what any church would do, and they called a meeting, and then a miracle happens because it says after the meeting, everybody was pleased. (laughs) But the crisis at hand was that the daily distribution of food wasn't sufficient. See, the thousands of people that were in the city of Jerusalem, they weren't going out to McDonald's together. They weren't going over to the soup kitchen, and they weren't going to Sam's Club or Costco in order to make sure that they had enough Doritos for the youth event. In this ancient age, they were bringing the people into their homes because that was the only place to feed and welcome them. And it was happening that this community was growing and loving and caring for one another so well that eventually the need outgrew their structures and their organization. But this, again, this wasn't just a compartmentalized service opportunity. You see, in America and in our culture, and I have to say, I am guilty of this in our church. When I'm not effective recruiting and encouraging people to serve alongside us, one of the things that I do is I make it easier. I say, just come and do just this part, and we'll just figure out the rest. And we start lowering our expectations for what church life is together. And I can tell you it's not a good strategy. The expectations that we need to have as a church and the way that we love and care for one another is that the same power that raised him from the dead is at work in you. The same power that overcomes the tomb and empties it out is what welcomes and cares for people in this community and around us. And when we don't practice that, we don't get to see it. The same message was preached over and over again. There's a dead man who was raised to life and we're going to live like it. It's not compartmentalized and just this token, if you can fit it into your schedule. It was in homes and around tables and a daily distribution. Because of this, it was highly communal and highly relational. It wasn't just about the food. Have you ever been to one of those restaurants that has like the community table? I hate those tables. 
Like, who wants to sit at that long table? Even if nobody's at it, you don't want to be the one to sit at it because then people are going to come. And it's weird because you don't want to eat with people you don't know. Because you can't just spend the whole time stuffing your face. You're going to run out of food. The table is an intimate place. Having people in your home, they cannot remain strangers, enemies for long. Not even neighbors, but they become friends, and friends become family, brothers and sisters in Christ. This daily distribution, this practice of every day meeting together and loving and caring for one another, they didn't just meet the material needs, but they met the relational needs. And this is important for us because when Jesus comes and preaches, and the witness of the, of the Bible points to this, is that that the brokenness that we receive, the poverty that we see in the world around us, the sickness, the illness, the strife, everything that we see around here is a symptom of a bigger reality. The loneliness, the isolation, and poverty is evidence of a broken system where sin and self-centeredness and brokenness, division from God, and disobedience is bearing this fruit of poverty and injustice and loneliness and brokenness in our world. And so we can go in and we can meet material needs, but is that just treating the symptom? And we should be treating the symptoms. Jesus over and over again says to feed and take care of the widow and the orphan and the poor, and the poor will always be among you to clothe them and care for them and offer them rest. But he says that because he's at work for a bigger reality, a deeper reality to restore and reconcile the world. As many scholars, historians, theologians, and people have pointed out, Jesus' message is that sin and brokenness distorts our relationship with God, ourselves, with one another, and creation. And because of this brokenness and poverty we experience, it's not just material need, but it's fundamentally the result, the symptom, the fruit of a breakdown in the relationships that God has created us for. And so the work of the kingdom and the work of the church is to restore those relationships and to meet those material needs, but to restore the deep need. So as poverty and material need are symptoms of this root cause, broken relationships, the way that we serve and love one another is an expression, symptom, or fruit of us being reconciled by Jesus. It's a reality that we don't live out in isolation, but in a community together. It's not this, uh, a sometimes thing. It's not an event, but it's a daily reality that we are welcomed into. In this passage here in Acts chapter 6, this is, if you may know, is about the, the establishment of the office of the deacons. And the word diakonia in Greek just means servant. And it's used three times in this passage. First, in verse 1, the daily distribution of food is the distribution, the diakonia. In verse 2, when it says that we shouldn't neglect the word to wait on tables, the word is diakonia of the tables, table service. And this doesn't just mean waiting. This means inviting somebody into your home and listening and building a relationship long enough to know what their need is. 
and then meeting it out of your household. And then in verse 4, when the apostles devote themselves to focusing on their role, praying and the ministry of the word, the word ministry is diakonia. So whether it's distributing food, showing hospitality and welcoming people in, preaching the word, serving coffee, going on a mission trip, teaching Sunday school, leading a community group discussion, holding the door for somebody, everything that we do is an opportunity for diakonia. It's an opportunity to serve and give witness to the hope that a man did come and die and was raised again and we can live like it together. The second thing that I want to point out is that everything in this passage is undergirded. Everything we see in the New Testament and the way that they radically love is about the word spreading. Verse 7. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. The word of God, the hope of a resurrected Jesus, that's what was so transformative to the people. That's why they could empty themselves and inconvenience themselves. They could deny themselves. They could die to their selfish ambition and vain conceit because Jesus came to meet our needs, to empty himself so that we can become self-emptying people, that we can bear the fruit and the witness to who he is and what he's done. It says that the resurrection is the first fruits, that Jesus' uh, witness and testimony, his story about himself is true and real. It's the first bit of evidence that everything Jesus said about himself and about the world is true. And then Jesus tells his disciples, now you're the next witness. Your life and your fruit is the way the story unfolds from here. There's a story that appeared in the paper. And the headline of it is, Florida woman stops an alligator attack with a small Beretta pistol. And this is the story of a woman with great self-control and marksmanship, remaining brave and cool-headed with a small pistol in a time of stress. And here's her story in her own words. While out walking along the edge of a pond just outside my house in the villages with my soon-to-be abusive ex-husband, we were discussing property settlements and other divorce issues when we were surprised by a 12-foot alligator which suddenly emerged from the murky water and began charging us with its large jaws wide open. She must have been protecting her nest because she was extremely aggressive. And if it had not been for my Beretta 25, I would not be here today. Just one well-placed shot to my estranged husband's kneecap was all it took. <laughs> the gator got him easily, and I was able to get away by walking at no more than a brisk pace. And the amount I saved in lawyer's fees was really incredible. The life insurance was also a big bonus. 
Now that's a cheap laugh. It's not the best sermon illustration. But the reality is a man did die for us so that we can live. And what fueled the early church was people who were eyewitnesses who ate with him and learned from him, went on and lived like he had come and died and risen again for them. We're 50% of the way there towards people signing up to teach Sunday school, to love and care for kids, to hold doors open, to serve our youth, all these kinds of opportunities. And we do it not out of guilt or shame and not simply just to meet material needs, but we do it because of what Jesus has come to do for us. I cannot promise that in the next few months we're going to grow to 10,000 people. But what I know is that we're invited to serve because we will forget often how amazing the hope of the gospel is. That our community is ambassadors of a miracle that the dead can be raised to new life. And I know that next week and the week after, Five new people are going to come in here asking if this is the place that God has prepared for them. And our hope is that we would love and live like this story is true. Amen.